Welcome to yet another Tuesday Home Time, presented by Jan Bartlett. And you could be listening on the old analogue station, 8.55am, or digital 3CR, and all programs stream for a week. You can do that through the 3cr.org.au homepage, and also there are instructions to have the program sent to your phone or computer as a podcast. So lots of ways to stay informed. And informing us today, Mark Conroy, representing Extension Rebellion. The new campaign is Just Stop It. It's already happening and more to come, targeting oil, gas and coal. Linus Corporation, new name, Linus Rare Earths, the same dirty polluter and dumper of radioactive waste in Malaysia. I'll be speaking with activist Lee Tan, whose hometown in Malaysia is where that radioactive waste dump is situated. We heard last week about the campaign against nuclear weapons companies in our super funds. Today it's getting Israeli arms manufacturer out of its Australian future fund and also its involvement with the federal and Victorian governments. Rowan Arat is the executive officer of the Australian Centre for International Justice. Peter Murphy is back from Timor-Leste where he was observer at the presidential elections and he'll tell us about the outcome and what's to come. And Dr Jim Green is the National Anti-Nuclear Campaigner for Friends of the Earth and the ongoing campaign against nuclear waste dumps in Kimba in South Australia. But first, let's find out how Mr Kevin Healy saw the last week. And, of course, don't forget to stay tuned after 6 o'clock for Done By Law. A week, Jane, listener, when don't want to frighten you into diving under the covers or whatever, but not, not coming out all day and all night. But sadly, we must report that we've uncovered a gang of traitors who pose a serious threat to our national security, perfidious practitioners of terrorism and anti-Trublawazi treachery. These indigenous people, and don't forget, these are the same anti-Trublawazis who describe our great national day as Invasion Day. That, that says it all. Indigenous people who claim the area of the Bootaloo Basin, earmarked for a bit of patriotic fracking, held a protest on Tuesday claiming it would destroy their country, their water, their sacred sites, their history, exposed the very next day when the Minister for Fracking Everything Up, Keith Pitpony, informed us the Beetaloo Basin fracking was a matter of national security. So let's hope those indigenous traitors wake up to the damage they're causing and put the national interests in the interests of national security, allow their home, their water, their sacred sites, their history be destroyed. In an egregious display of arrogance, the UN of the US of the UN of the World Secretary General accused Trublawazi of failing miserably in addressing climate change, quickly put in his place by Keith, who pointed out how we address climate change is a matter for us, for Trublawazi, that we must protect our national security. Let a little bit of fracking and fossil extraction and related matters of national security generally contribute to our role in continuing Keith's awareness that there is no such thing as climate change anyway. It's our business and nobody else's. Except
same day, the Minister for Pollution, Susan Lees and Dregs, asked about yet another UN of report about threats to the Great Barrier Reef, said, well, like Keith, this is a matter for true blue for us, no business of, well, well, no. Susan said addressing this problem was a matter for all countries that Trublowozzi couldn't do it on its own. So hang on. Simultaneously, climate change is a matter for Trublowozzi and nothing to do with the rest of the world, and climate change is a matter for the rest of the world and nothing to do with Trublowozzi. Can we suggest, with great respect to two honourable people, next time Keith and Susan get together, they also get their act together. And of course, there's absolutely no relationship whatever between fracking, the gas, and the alleged, stress-alleged, bleaching of the Great Barrier Reef. On such matters, thousands of schoolchildren who should be in the classroom and not on the streets were out on the streets Friday, not seen and not heard, carried on that they would suffer from climate change long after the men and few women in suits in the fossil boardrooms and in government have gone to the great open cut in the sky. Get back to the classroom and leave these matters to Keith and Susan, who will exercise the duty of care to them she knows she doesn't have to exercise. Although in fairness to these children carrying on about something that is the business of mature, responsible adults like the fossil boardrooms and Keith and Susan, in the classroom they are being educated by a pack of idiots, revealed by the Minister for Stuffing Up Everything He Touches, Stu Idiot Robert, who said he would give most teachers an F bit worrying, but I think he meant fail rather than, well, anyway. Good news, Stu. The week that was will give you a quadruple Z. Workers in South Trublowasi were whooping it up as a socialist government took over with the new supremo Peter Malinaskis for profits, exciting socialists by promising he would rule for the caring business class. I will be a pro-business leader who will work hand-in-hand with private enterprise. Caring business class oligarchs would be invited to meet with Cabinet every month. They will have a seat at the table. Pete franked his socialist credentials. And of course, evil unions will also have a seat at the table. Pete, be invited to meet with Cabinet. That might be a little more difficult. Obviously, it would give our opposition and the caring business class understandably, the right to attack us for being too close to the union movement. Uh, You don't think some people might think you're being a bit too close to the oligarchs, the caring business class movement? I don't know where that came from. That is a ludicrous question. Who ever heard of government being too close to business? After all, we have been elected to govern a capitalist economy. Those working class credentials, of course, come from his background with the Shopping the Workers' Union, or sorry, Association, which very definitely knows for whom it exists, and thus that explains why South Trublowozzi workers are whooping it up. Now, here's a blast from the past. Stephen Smith, remember him? He was, among other things, Minister for Being Offensive and Trained Killing in the Root the Workers, Galling Hard, Root the Workers, Stab in the Back Socialist Governments.
I'd forgotten he ever existed, but he re-emerged this week, taking a new socialist job as senior advisor to a U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the World Company, specializing in advising on matters of trained killing. Kicking off his new role at taking evil China for not attacking evil Russia. In other words, a dedicated socialist continuing his relentless devotion to working people, to the socialist cause. And I'm sure I can speak for all of us in wishing him luck in his new role, keeping trained killing and filling the coffers of the merchants of death on the agenda like our media, including the ABC, which we mentioned last week, turns out a conga line of mainly US of so-called experts on war is peace. One this week, non-US of this time, an academic on war is peace from Prague, asked about the threat of nuclear war, who informed us expertly that Ukraine is not a nuclear power, but NATO is, and evil Russia is. And I thought... My God, this is in-depth stuff. And then he suggested Ukraine made a mistake not retaining nuclear weapons after the breakup of the Soviet Union. And again I thought, my God, wouldn't that work wonders now? And just perhaps it might, just might have increased the threat of nuclear war. And in a news report Thursday, the ABC announced breathlessly, it's now official. Evil Russia has committed war crimes. The source? No less reliable than the U.S. of State Department, renowned for its objective views on the world's bad guys. And even more pertinent, if anyone would know all about war crimes, it's the U.S. of and the U.S. of State Department. And while there seems little doubt that Russia is committing war crimes, indeed we might ask which bit of train killing is not a crime, but it's important to understand that when the bad guys bomb and destroy and slaughter civilians, it's a war crime. When the good guys, including True Blue Aussie, carrying out our orders from Washington, bomb and destroy and slaughter civilians, it's collateral damage. So the good guys can never commit a war crime, and hence can righteously damn those who do. We remain very, very, very angry with evil China because evil China refuses to criticize evil Russia or not criticize evil Russia with enough enthusiasm. So from Big Supremo Scuttlebem more less than AKA Scummo through to Peter Duffer and Anthony All Being Uzi and Penny Left Wing and our mainstream media, we are angry, angry, angry. And this week, Scummo held a meeting with our Indian ally, Narendam non-Hindus Modi, claiming we share the same values. Like-minded liberal democracies, free societies that love liberty, freedom and democracy, the rule of law, all those qualities that distinguish democracy from evil, like evil China and evil Russia, which is all very well, except again... Modi too refuses to criticise evil Russia. But in this case, Scummo and Pete and Anthony and Petty and our mainstream media laud him for his values, like, presumably, his silence. Apparently accepting New Zealand's offer to accept no proper papers queue-jumping illegal boat people rotting on Nauru for years is no longer a backdoor trick subterfuge to cut back to Trublawazi which has treated them so well for all those years, because now Scummo and co. have agreed to the offer, 
allowing the illegal boat people to resettle in New Zealand over the next three years. Bet they're hoping Trudeau doesn't change his mind again after the election. Uh, but Scummo, if these people can resettle in New Zealand, why couldn't they just resettle right here in Trublawazi? Well, obviously, because it's apparent the New Zealand government can win elections without having to resort to exploiting those seeking refuge and treating them like criminals. Finally, in the week that was sport, young Indigenous tennis champ Ash Barty declared game, set and match. And good luck to her. I think she's one sports person whose sports personship made us all feel good. But her retirement led to people saying we should all consider quitting when we're ahead. And I thought, for most of us, the problem with that is the bit about getting ahead in the first place to be able to quit. Good afternoon. And 9am Wednesday morning is your next date with Kevin Healy and the crew with the excellent program. City Limits. This lasting delusion about children trapped in tunnels. That's how we got Aussie Q, it seems. And now everything else. I mean, now it's just a six-month pipeline from that to Australians who who, who live in this alternate uh, American fantasy land where they post about Donald Trump all the time. So its ability to, via Save the Children stuff, to get a whole range of different political persuasions in is what I found fascinating, you know. I talk a lot in the Aussie Q videos about how your auntie, she might not be that far right wing now but she might be quite left she might just be a spiritual hippie type but there's this broad appeal to things like save the children and great awakenings there's almost a hippie like quality to it particularly when you tone down the whole MAGA element of, of traditional Q and it's getting people in there but Q is not just a conspiracy theory is it it is this conspiracy theory that is meant to drag you right after a few months so your auntie's going to be talking about make Australia great again in six months if she isn't right now You're listening to Radical Radio, 3CR. Hi, we're from Radical College, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio on 8.55am. There is a lot written about it, talked about it, argued about it, but the global environmental movement, Extinction Rebellion, says enough is enough. It's an environmental crisis. And the only way out is mass self-disobedience. With a new campaign, just stop it. I spoke with Mark Conroy, one of the main organisers of the campaign, and pointed out, Mark, that the call is just stop it. Just stop what and why? <laughs> well, just stop it uh, refers to fossil fuels, basically the production and distribution of all fossil fuels, uh, coal, oil and gas, because they are what's driving the climate and ecological emergency that we, we find ourselves increasingly unavoidably aware of every single day. And so, yeah, just stop it. A bunch of politics around it, a bunch of economics around it, um, but we think it's actually a lot simpler than people make it out to be. Just stop it. Well, tell me a bit about Extinction Rebellion and how you're going to do it. So uh, Extinction Rebellion is a global uh, network, I suppose, of 
of nonviolent civil disobedience practitioners. We're in about 70 countries now. Been around since 2018, and it's a response to government inaction on the climate crisis. The way it works is we have three demands. Uh, the first demand is to tell the truth on the climate crisis. The second demand is to act now, um, net zero, and uh, halt biodiversity loss as soon as humanly possible. And step three, demand three, because we don't trust governments to do this in an equitable way, uh, we demand citizens' assemblies uh, to, to manage that transition. And uh, because we think the major parties in most countries are captured by fossil fuel interests, we say that the, the only way to get it is for the ordinary citizenry to engage in mass nonviolent civil disobedience. Uh, so that's what we'll be doing. Uh, for those who weren't aware, in, in Melbourne, Extinction Rebellion has had sort of two major mobilizations, one in late 2019 and one uh, in March last year. And so what... what what we're doing now, the Just Stuff It campaign, can sort of be seen as the, the sequel to those, the third one. But this time, uh, rather than blocking roads and uh, walking through the city, we'll be much more directly targeting fossil fuel infrastructure. But there have been instances of that in Australia in recent times, hasn't there? And think about right. coal loading and things like that. Yeah, so uh, we had Blockade Australia blocking the uh, the coal ports in Newcastle at the end of last year, as well as yeah, a bunch of extremely brave and highly effective groups doing it over over the decades, really. And yeah, we stand in solidarity with them and respect them very much, and hope to hope to emulate them, really. What about overseas? What successes have they had, and what avenues have they chosen for their civil disobedience? Well, there's a diversification of tactics going on sort of as we speak, really. You know, Extinction Rebellion burst onto the scene in, like I say, 2018, 2019. And in the wake of that, other different groups have, have been trying a lot of different things. So there was Insulate Britain, famously, in, uh, in Britain last year, um, who sort of cut away a lot of the uh, aesthetic and technical, you know, complications of XR and just sat on freeways aiming to get a fairly limited demand met. Uh, and you see that with Fireproof Australia, you know, pursuing a similar sort of strategy in Sydney at the moment. Meanwhile, other groups in America have uh, have been directly intervening in fossil fuel infrastructure as well, stopping pipelines and blocking railroads, these sorts of things. As far as successes go, uh, it's a patchy record, I should say. It's tiny victories and big defeats. Um, I think just because our, our ambitions are so high, really, um, you know, we're calling for, if you if you think about it for more than 20 seconds, you, you realize that what we're calling for is, is massively, massively radical in a way. We're calling for massive changes in the way our society is put together. So, you know, we won't be able to declare victory for you know, a long time until things change quite a lot. No, you're calling it um, direct action, but no violence. Why do you choose that path? Well, a number of reasons. Historically, it's shown to be the most effective way to bring about social change. If you engage in violent direct action, uh, it tends not to be particularly accessible to anyone, even those who might sympathize with your cause. And it's a moral choice. Uh, you know, we, we don't wish to do violence. We wish to stop the violence that's being done to our planet. And... Um, 
So, yeah, uh, based on sort of social science research, we believe that a nonviolent movement is the best way to go in terms of driving mass participation. Uh, there's, you know, limited training, limited risk, uh, and it has the effect of when the government, you know, represses you, it makes you seem much more sympathetic in the eyes of the of the viewing public when you're just sitting there peacefully uh, singing songs or, or not saying anything than when you're, you know, throwing cocktails and um, shouting and breaking things. But as you say, you aim to cause material disruption. Well, that brings in the police, or in some cases it just brings in more than the police, and that, may, and that can mean violence. How do you turn the other cheek? Uh, we do non-violence training, um, so we do sort of role-play exercises based on these things. And we've got a, a variety of strategies that our rebels are well-trained in to de-escalate situations like that. We're aware that, you know, we can't plan for every contingency and, uh, and you know, we, we understand that there's, there's definitely risk involved in what we're doing. Uh, but that comes with the territory, really, and I think it's sacrifice that we're, that we're willing to make. Have you already made that sacrifice? Well, it depends how you determine violence, really. I mean, we, uh, <laughs> I've never been pepper sprayed, but I have had some rough handling, I suppose, in, uh, in my time as an activist, which, yeah, I'm not saying to, to be a martyr or anything, but, yeah, it is, it is a reality. You, you get thrown against walls and you get, you, you, you glue your hand on and you get it ripped straight off and lose a layer of skin. Then, you know, these things do happen. Yeah. Well, oil, gas and coal, they're pretty important or they seem to be pretty important in our society. It's a big aim. We have to have something to replace it with, not only get rid of it, but something to replace it with. What's your aim in that area? Uh, so, functionality is not prescriptive as far as solutions go. That's, I guess, partly a calculation on our part that we want to drive mass participation, so we don't want to lock ourselves to any particular solution. We don't call for this amount of renewable energy by this time. We don't say anything about the meat and dairy industry. Obviously, a lot of people in environmental, environmental activism do. What we say is that the process should be handled by a citizens' assembly, and a citizens' assembly is a random but representative sample of the populace that is brought together, advised by experts who have to declare their bias and funding, and then instructed on how to make democratic decisions on how to deal with the crisis. Um, so that is what we say uh, should precede our movement, I suppose. Have there been citizen assemblies in other countries? There have. There was a citizen assembly on climate in France, uh, unfortunately non-binding, so we will insist uh, on a binding citizen's assembly, but uh, the government has implemented uh, the vast majority of their recommendations. Here in Australia, there was a citizen's assembly run along this model uh, to deal with the problem of nuclear waste in South Australia. Um, that was fairly equitable and successful. And they are gaining in popularity around the world. There's, uh, find out more at the Sortition Foundation. Now, one of your aims is to get politicians and people with a, in industry to tell the truth. That's a hard one. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, it's easy to get bogged down in philosophical questions of what the truth is, isn't it? But I don't think it's as, you know, along with sort of just stop fossil fuels, we, we don't think it's as hard as people make it out to be. The science has been pretty clear uh, for quite a while. 
you know, ExxonMobil, who have a fuel distribution terminal here in Melbourne, they paid for the research in the 1970s that conclusively demonstrated the greenhouse effect and the fact that climate change was on its way. And then they spent 50 years uh, funding denial and uh, delay in, in that regard. So the truth is out there. Uh, but what we need is for governments and media organizations to do what they did with COVID, which is to put it all over the front page, have a press conference about it every day, keep a tally of deaths, and uh, inform the public that this is the absolute crisis that we know it to be. The media ones have had one, the way it's controlled by so few people now, and it's very hard, I believe, I would believe, to get onto the ABC or SBS these days too. Yeah, it is a tricky one. Um, and part of what we're hoping will happen is that we can cause enough material disruption that they're forced to not ignore us. I mean, if you see what Blockade Australia is doing in Sydney at the moment, they've been blockading Port Botany for the, every day for the past few days, and they just managed to get on Sunrise. Similarly, with Interlake Britain, they managed to keep their disruption up for quite a while and did something like 70 TV appearances. So uh, we're, we're very much looking to that model of Disruption equals airtime. You don't necessarily need a lot of people? Well, it sort of scales. The fewer people you have, the more technical complexity is required. But, yeah, I mean, you know, Port Botany was blocked for, for nine hours yesterday with one person. So there are certainly ways of, of causing disruption with a small number of people. But obviously, we'd much prefer to have... 500 people blocking a, a, a coal port or a, a field terminal or what have you, rather than three people with a device. And what's your program for recruiting new members to ER? Uh, we do a range of strategies. Uh, we do the sort of the classic, the classic political group flyering, letterboxing, blistering sort of thing. We hold regular talks and at community halls and uh, online over Zoom. Um, and we also know pretty conclusively that action breeds mobilization. So in the wake of this upcoming campaign, um, we'll be doing a lot of those outreach activities because when we've done them in the past, uh, it tends to, to drive participation in a major way. Have you contacted many politicians over the last couple of years to just to find out what their views are? I'm not talking about the government itself, but the local politicians. Yeah, we, we have a dialogue with them. I mean, we, we, spend, we spend a lot of time at their offices during COVID because it was a, a way of taking action that didn't necessitate walking through, you know, massive parts of the city. And obviously some are more sympathetic than others. Uh, you might imagine that the Greens are often on point, um, although, yeah, we don't favour any political party and, you know, the Citizens Assembly is a solution that's designed to sidestep the electoral system. So, yeah, we uh, we do have some sympathy. Adam Bant called Extinction of Alien Heroes in Parliament, which was you know, gratifying. But, yeah, uh, we, we don't look too much to politicians. Do you work with the students who are having their demonstrations at the moment? We do. Um, we have Extinction of Alien Youth who are... Uh, you know, naturally our closest contacts with school strike and climate. And yeah, we've, we've sort of sprung into being around the same time. So we've definitely worked alongside and in parallel um, all, all that time. And what's planned for the very near future? Because you've got um, 
election coming up very soon? Yeah, that's right. So obviously the Just Stop It campaign is not far off. Uh, I won't say exactly when, but um, it's going to be starting relatively soon. And we hope to use that as a springboard into, shall we say, the election conversation to demand a, an emergency transition plan, or at least demand to know where it is uh, from each of the major parties as an election issue, and vow to keep causing this kind of disruption unless the necessary action is taken. Um, so, yeah, really, our election strategy is to, to make enough noise that, that none of the major parties and none of the major candidates can not talk about the climate crisis as an election issue. Just finally, Mark, I, perhaps I should have asked you this question first. I understand that you've been an activist for quite a while. Why did you choose Extinction Rebellion after other ways of acting? I'm from an arts background, so I'm a, you know, worked in music and in theatre. Uh, and I guess what attracted me to Extinction Rebellion in the first instance, having been involved in in various other groups that involved a lot of shouting and not a lot of personal solidarity, going into Extinction Rebellion, which has a really colourful aesthetic and really uh, views art as both a weapon and an end goal in uh, creating a new society, uh, that resonated me, with me really, really deeply. And in terms of nonviolent direct action, there's a lot of uh, crossover between putting on a play and putting on a nonviolent direct action. So it seems to me to be the best fit. And I'm still here four or five years later. Uh, so I, I, I think I'm, I'm in for life. How do people contact you? The group? You go to ozrebellion.earth. Uh, which is the Australian Extinction Rebellion website. And if you want to get involved in the Just Stop It campaign, you can email juststopitvic, all one word, at protonmail.com. That's all one word. And do people have to commit to a certain time or a certain number of days or whatever for this campaign? Well, they don't have to commit to a minimum number of those things, but there will be certain times that, will involve action and those will be made aware uh those be you know made made known to people who join the campaign but there's no minimum level of commitment uh and if you just want to come and wave a flag or hold a banner or sing a song then we'd love to have you and of course we can't leave it much longer can we no we absolutely cannot we are plunging headfirst into the apocalyptic future that we were all warned about, and yet nothing has been done. Better do it before it's too late. Okay, well, are there any final words you'd like to say, Mark? Yeah, just that if you're sitting out there and nodding along and thinking this all sounds pretty good, then come and join us, because there's this thing, there's this wall that you've got to break through where... You know, you look at activists and you think, oh, that's them, but I'm busy with my life doing what I'm doing. But we were all just like that before we did this. Uh, and you can be like us too. It just takes the decision and the courage to realize that there is nothing more important in anybody's life that they could be doing than safeguarding the future of this planet. So find your courage and come along. Thank you, Mark. Thank you very much. And thanks to Mark Conroy from Extinction Rebellion.
we're talking about ecological thinning and subsidised longing, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever there are chemical corporations around the world, they're constantly trying to chip away at regulations. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided, the nuclear power plant is still not under control with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is out. When you compare an old-growth forest compared to a forest which is regrowing after a disturbance like logging, they're actually quite different ecosystems. Generally, like older, wetter forests slow down the path of fire, and this is actually quite a well-known phenomenon. Historically, these big, large fires have been quite rare, but what we've seen in the last 20 years is they're becoming quite a lot more common. So we've had three in the last 20 years. This is definitely because of climate change, which is making our ecosystems a lot drier and the fire weather more intense. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Today we revisit Linus and a new development in Western Australia. I'm speaking with environmental activist Lee Tan, whose hometown in Malaysia, Kuantan, is where Linus established its reduction line of rare earth, including a radioactive waste dump in a peat bog. The issue we're going to be talking about today is Linus Corporation. We normally focus entirely on what's happening in Malaysia, but we're going to start today... Kalgoorlie, Western Australia, what are they up to there? Well, the EPA has approved with conditions for the Kalgoorlie Secondary Processing Plant. By the way, Linus Corporation has now changed its name to Linus Rare Earth, mainly because of the importance of rare earth in the international market and also for geopolitical reasons. Yeah, so, you know, as you can see, this company is very kind of upwardly mobile all the time to capture investors and shareholders. Uh, anyway, back to Kalgoorlie. So the conditions imposed by the WA EPA is that liners cannot store the, waste, the radioactive waste and also another stream, which is a gypsum waste that's also contaminated with a, a, a very small amount of radioactive materials. So both of those wastes cannot be stored near Kalgoorlie. They have to be returned to uh, Linus Mount Weld Mine Site for disposal as a low-level radioactive waste. And that's really important, both 
for, you know, ok health and safety, for public health and environmental health in the long term. But more importantly, it is, import, it, it is uh, significant for the Malaysian when, where the governments are, and also mainly liners, claim that the waste is not radioactive waste. It is called norm waste, which is in some way correct, but when norm waste cannot be reused, recycled or whatever, it's actually treated as a radioactive waste. So that was one of the conditions. And then, um, and of course, you know, those conditions came about because organizations like AWASH and local residents in Kalgoorlie petitioned and, and, wrote, and put in submission. When the environmental impact assessment was uh, put up for public consultation, so I worked on that quite a lot and uh, put in very substantial points, and also invited Associate Professor Gavin Mudd from RMIT University to do an assessment. So you know we've got a scientifically solid submission to back up our our points. I mean, of course, we did uh, try to stop Linus from constructing that secondary processing plant in Kalgoorlie and, you know, suggesting that it should go back to as close to the mine as possible to locate it away from population um, area. But, you know, we couldn't do that because Linus has got the full support from the Kalgoorlie City Council uh, much to the frustration and anger of some of the local residents. Um, so that's the Kalgoorlie side. And, uh, and also, um, Linus is only allowed to store a small amount of um, the contaminated waste on site next to its plant for up to a year. Um, as we can see, in Malaysia, it has accumulated millions of tons of contaminated waste by the, the plant in the last 10 years. So that sort of situation cannot be allowed to happen in Kalgoorlie. But in Malaysia, unfortunately, partly due to, due to lack of understanding of the hazard of this kind of um, uh, waste, mainly because of from, from our, yeah, we, we appeal a watch and some of the local residents in Kalgoorlie appealed against the EPA decision to allow Linus to construct a secondary processing plant uh, at Kalgoorlie Boulder. And in our appeal, we raised some of the key points that hasn't been taken into consideration in the EPA decision. And that is, there is no fixed time as to how, how long they can store the waste on site next to the plant. So we raised uh, that, those sort of points. Yeah, and I mean, we did, you know, try and appeal for the plant to be relocated back to Malwell area, to be managed there, where there's less people living around and also in a much more kind of drier environment. But, you know, we didn't get that, but we, what we did get was um, the restriction on the amount of waste that Linus can store on site. Um, and that again, you know, is a, a, a good outcome for the case in Malaysia where Linus basically say that, it, you know, it's uh, 
uh, storage them, waste storage them, um, it, uh, it's saved and all that sort of stuff in Malaysia. So yeah, basically we tr- we managed to set some benchmarks through the Kalgoorlie proposal, um, but the situation in Malaysia is still uncertain and dire in that sense. Later, why is it being processed in Kalgoorlie and not at Mount Weld? Now, in the first place, best possible scenario, even though there will still be pollution problems and all that, um, Linus should have done everything near Mount Weld or, you know, in another industrial area in Australia, in Western Australia, as close as possible to the mine site. I would say that it's more to do with uh, cheaper production for Linus to send it to Malaysia, where there's hardly any, you know, regulatory requirement and the requirements are not followed and forced anyway in Malaysia. So Linus was able to set the plan up very quickly back in um, 2011 uh, or before that uh, without having to go through all the more stringent technical and scientific scrutiny. Uh, we're not saying that in Australia the standard is high enough, but at least it's higher than what has happened in Malaysia. And yeah, and and there are some level of management here and regulatory requirements that has been enforced, whereas in Malaysia it was none of that. And that's the reason why Linus has chosen Malaysia, plus the the much cheaper uh, setup cost and the running cost and especially the waste disposal and pollution monitoring uh, costs. There's really very minimal in Malaysia, whereas in Australia, there are some capacity within EPA to, to do independent testings, but in Malaysia, they don't. Uh, and, and even if they've done it, politically, because of the strong backing from the highest level of office in Malaysia, the the environmental uh, authority in in uh, Malaysia basically just close an eye to any pollution issues, even though the data are there, and that's one of the main reasons why Linus chosen Malaysia because they could get away with anything in that sense, exert a lot of influence on um, local governance and also on political dynamic in Malaysia. How does the rare earth concentrate get from Mount Well to Kalgoorlie? They will be transported on, uh, on by train or by truck. I can't remember if there's any, actually a train line. I think, no, there won't be any train line. It will be transported by truck. So all of that details are lacking, actually, in the uh, EIA report. And we raised that issues of, like, you know, there's no detail on the transportation. I think there were some claim that it has, Linus has done that by transporting the concentrate from Malwell to Fremantle for export to Malaysia without any mishap or problems. So, you know, it, it won't be a problem just to transport it from Malwell to um, Kalgoorlie. But we are more concerned about the other way when the waste get transported from uh, the Kalgoorlie boulder plant back to Malweld, there's no route apart from um, the main street 
of Kalgoorlie that will have to be travelled by the truck when it transports the waste back. And accident can happen. Yeah, and the waste are both, you know, hazardous and radioactive. How big was the campaign within the community at Kalgoorlie Boulder? Well, there isn't like an active movement, but there are some residents who are actively um, advocating against it. I think the problem is the environmental groups in Western Australia are overstretched. In some way, they are of the view that it is better to be processed in WA than in Malaysia, which I agree. So only AWATCH has been monitoring it, um, but we do work closely with uh, the Conservation Council of WA, mainly because they're stretched capacity-wise. They just haven't got the time or energy to do anything about it, which is, you know, unfortunately the case because... There's uranium mining, there's all sorts of uh, other mining issues in WA which they have to um, handle. What are your comments on the EPA? Well, we raised a a whole range of comments. Mainly we wanted the plant to be relocated as close as possible in Malwell or in anywhere that are not close to residents or human settlements. I mean, that includes. Uh, traditional owners, informed consent, and also their safety, as well as that of the environment. Were people listened to? Put it that way, I think we were were not 100% happy in that the plant is still approved for the Kalgoorlie Boulder area, but we are slightly kind of relieved in that The same situation that happened in Malaysia when millions of tons of radioactive waste been accumulating from day one of the operation over there until now, and it is contaminating the environment. Um, It is probably affecting local people's health, uh, totally undetected, and no action from the government. So in the case of Kalgoorlie Boulder, we managed to get the waste you know, sent back to, to Malweld. Uh, we also managed to restrict the, the time for liners to be able to store the waste on site. And those are some of the points that we can use in Malaysia to further advocate for that waste to be removed from the country and returned to the Malweld site to be managed and, and disposed of together with its forthcoming waste from the Kalgoorlie Boulder plant. And that is, you know, a big challenge, but we will pursue that. Who will be listening to you back in Malaysia when you do present your concerns? Yep. We've been working with Friends of the Earth and also Safe Malaysia Stopliners uh, and some of the uh, opposition MPs. Yeah, so, you know, it has been very helpful. In Malaysia, Linus has applied to dump the waste permanently uh, in a pit swamp next to the plant, in a facility that is very poorly and inadequately poorly designed, will inadequately um, store the waste, and it will not be intact for even more than 20 years. And that was all uncovered in his own uh, EIA report. 
And so we, together with Friends of the Earth and, and um, Save Malaysia Stopliners and other people have uh, petitioned against that. Um, unfortunately, as we expected in Malaysia, the government did not listen to the public submission and now we are appealing that decision through the Environmental Appeal Board in Malaysia. We, we're in the middle of doing that and uh, we hope that our scientific arguments and engineering arguments will be taken on board by the appeal board and failing to do that, we'll have to, you know, take it to the court in Malaysia. End of the program. Next week we'll have part two of the interview with Lee Tan. Do you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? We'll drop them in at 3CR and put them in the Books and Boots bin. Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au We love a good book. Common Social Change Library is an online collection of educational resources for those campaigning for social change. It collects, curates and distributes the key lessons and resources of progressive movements around Australia and across the globe. The library includes over 500 resources covering campaign strategy, community organising, activist history, digital campaigning, diversity and inclusion and much, much more. It's free to access the library, so check out the collection at www.commonslibrary.org. Commons Social Change Library is a 3CR supporter. While the world's tension, it would appear, is concentrated on the war in Ukraine, in Australia, local domestic issues take the backstage, i.e. floods, reef bleaching, etc. One such domestic issue with implications for the country as a whole is the federal government's plan for a national radioactive waste dump near Kimber, South Australia, which was formally announced in November last year. But opposition to the dump has not diminished. Bangala traditional owners Local farmers and environmentalists are continuing the battle to stop the dump. Today I'm speaking with Dr Jim Green, the National Nuclear Campaigner for Friends of the Earth. First, Jim, identify what the government's proposed dump will contain and where it will come from. Uh, well, there's really two dumps or two facilities to use their words. One is a burial site for low-level waste and one is an above-ground storage shed for long-lived intermediate-level waste. So the low-level waste will stay there forever, and the interim or temporary storage shed, we've got no idea where that long-lived intermediate-level waste will eventually be disposed of because it's destined for deep underground disposal, 
and the government hasn't even begun any serious consideration of of where that uh, deep underground facility might be. And in terms of where the waste comes from, well, that's pretty simple. If you measure by radioactivity, over 90% of it comes from one site, which is the Lucas Heights site south of Sydney, operated by AMSTO, the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation. Now, is that material at ANSTO, is that Australian material or is that coming from overseas? Yeah, but it's all Australian. The only stuff that comes from overseas originated in Australia in the first place, and that is uh, spent nuclear fuel from the research reactors that have operated at Lucas Heights, and that spent nuclear fuel is sent overseas for reprocessing gone to both the UK and to France and uh, the reprocessing waste is sent back to Australia. You're saying there's two issues here. Are they both in the Kimber area? Yeah, that's right. They plan to build both for disposal dump for uh, low-level waste as well as the storage site for intermediate-level waste, both at Kimber. Well, into the equation comes the law in South Australia, which was the... South Australian Nuclear Waste Storage Facility Prohibition Act and addition of the South Australian Olson Liberal Government a number of years ago. Where does that fit into the equation now? That legislation could be overridden by the Federal Government and that is what the Federal Government intends to do. Uh, we've just had a change of government here in South Australia. Last week we had a Liberal government who was saying that they would amend the legislation to make it easier for the Federal Government. But I don't know how it will play out now. Um, I hope the South Australian Labor government uh, shows some strength and sticks up for South Australia, in which case they might not be on strong legal ground, but they can make it very difficult politically for the Federal Government uh, which is exactly what we want. We want the state government to delay it as much as possible and to make it a, a huge political issue until the federal government has the, has the sense to back down. Well, in the past, the Labor Party in South Australia were opposed to it. Yeah, they still are. They're not really proactive about it, but they've got a clear position, which is that they oppose the dump for one particular reason, which is the opposition of the Bangala traditional owners. And the Bangala are unanimous in their opposition. And so that's the main reason that state Labor opposes it. And I think that probably also applies to federal Labor as well. So, of course, this whole debate will uh, be flipped on its head if Labor wins the federal election in May. And, you know, it's not entirely clear how federal Labor would handle this issue, but I don't think that they would be crude enough or racist enough to go ahead with a nuclear waste dump that is unanimously opposed by the traditional owners. So I would think that that would be the end of it if, uh, if federal Labor wins. Did they make any noises in the last little while that they might take this action? Yeah, uh, well, the clearest indication we've got from federal Labor was that a year ago, they opposed an attempt by the federal government to amend federal legislation, and the amendment was designed to block any judicial or legal challenge to the nomination of the dump site, and Labor said that that was unacceptable, and so did crossbenchers, so that government amendment was, was voted down. So, I mean, that's a clear sign from Labor that, you know, there's 
they're thinking about the issue and they're aware of it. But, you know, we don't know. Go back quite some years when the Rudd government was elected in 2007 and uh, he appointed Martin Ferguson as the, uh, Martin Ferguson as the minister responsible for dealing with nuclear waste. And Ferguson was every bit as bad as the worst of the Liberal Party people. Um, so his behaviour was appalling. We could get that again, but I don't think so. I think for federal and state labour, as I've said, pushing ahead with a dump despite the unanimous opposition of the traditional owners, it's just a bridge too far. How was this site near Kimber chosen and why? Well, about six or seven years ago, the government called for people to nominate dump sites around Australia and from memory there might have been about 26 different sites nominated including some sites in Kimber and the government initially rejected the Kimber nomination because of a lack of community support but there were some very determined people in Kimber who re-nominated the site and it was accepted and through a long process of attrition and other sites being knocked off and who are those people that pushed for it? Well, there's a, a federal politician called Rowan Ramsey. He's in the coalition. And also some Kimber farmers, in particular those that stand to benefit from the whole issue financially. But they would be the main people. And they had a... The government initiated what they called a community ballot... So it was a vote of locals, but it was farcical. It was rigged in a bunch of different ways I won't go into, but the government also excluded Bangala traditional owners from voting in that community ballot, which was just an outrage, and even fought a, a legal case to prevent Bangala being included in that community ballot. So, And the whole thing was lubricated with multi-million dollar bribes. So when they finally did have the community ballot... 54% uh, of the locals supported the proposed nuclear waste dump, but Bangla were excluded, so they conducted their own ballot, a professional independent ballot, which revealed zero support, absolutely no support whatsoever for the nuclear waste dump amongst Bangla traditional owners. And if you put those two ballots together, it comes out at 43% support. So they don't have majority support, and the government has also set a benchmark, a benchmark for what they call broad community support of 65%. So, in fact, they've got 43% support, which is not a majority, and it's a long way short of their own benchmark of 65%. How did the government justify leaving the traditional owners out of the voting? It was very legalistic. You know, they said that only ratepayers can be included in the ballots. So, you know, traditional owner rights are not rateable rights in the legalistic jargon. So that's as as good as it got in terms of an explanation. It's obviously not very good. You know, another answer would be to say that they're just disgusting, blatant racists and that they knew the traditional owners were opposed so they did their best to exclude them and even fought a court case to to maintain their exclusion from the ballot. Well, that goes back to the 19th century, doesn't it, where people, the only people who could vote were those who, were the, who owned the property or were ratepayers. 
Yeah, I know. You know, if you follow the government down the rabbit hole of their logic, well, Bangala people several hundred years ago might have had the foresight to initiate a system of rateable property rights in the eventuation in the event that uh, European colonisers set up a, a rate paying system such as they are now using to justify their exclusion from the nuclear waste dump. It's it's just ridiculous, but we shouldn't go down those rabbit holes. It's basically the coalition government being blatantly racist, the Murdoch press completely disinterested and basically supporting the dump, Labor being opposed but not at all proactive at state or federal levels, which is really disappointing, you know. Labor, state Labor was not making an issue of this in the federal, in the, in the state election contest that led up to last Saturday's election. So we need a lot more work from uh, all the political parties, a lot of improvement. Now this is going to take place on farming land. It's a fact that there's not a great deal of farming land in South Australia. There's not a lot of arable land in an arid state. How much of that precious farming area will be impacted if this goes ahead? Well, it's not a huge huge area. I think it's 100 hectares, but I could easily be wrong with that. But we're concerned about the impacts if there's an accident. And, you know, that could that could significantly widen the environmental impact. There's also the reputational damage that, you know, Kimber will be known as Australia's nuclear dump site. And I don't think that will fare well for agriculturalists on the Air Peninsula. And how is the material going to get to Kimber? A very large majority would be trucked to Kimber, and we don't know the routes yet. The government won't say what routes it's planning to use and uh, probably doesn't even know itself, but, you know, not over 90% of it measured by radioactivity is coming from Lucas Heights, so there's only so many possible routes it can take. There's only two or three options, really. And some of the waste... They ship the, repro- the spent nuclear fuel from Lucas Heights, they ship that overseas and it comes back by ship. So that would have to come through a port and that would almost certainly be the port of Wyala. Well, environmentalists and groups such as Medical Association for Prevention of War have long voiced their opposition to this. Is there a hidden agenda in this project? No, I don't think there's a hidden agenda. I don't think there's any agenda at all or any thought at all. If you look at the reasons why the government is wanting to build a nuclear waste dump, well, there aren't any logical reasons. If you go back 20 years, it was very clear the Howard government wanted to build a nuclear reactor at Lucas Heights and they thought that getting rid of the waste would lessen opposition to that nuclear reactor. So there was some logic. If you go back about 10 years then the spent fuel reprocessing waste was coming back from overseas and they were very keen to avoid taking that reprocessing waste back to Lucas Heights because it's uh, because there are a lot of electorates in the southern Sydney region and they were worried about the political fallout. But anyway, that's where the reprocessing waste is going and there hasn't been any political fallout. So if you ask yourself now is the reason for a nuclear waste dump now and there's no reason at all no public health or environmental reason there isn't even a political reason 
so you can think of this nuclear waste dump as a solution in search of a problem. And it's especially problematic for this intermediate level waste. That's by far the most dangerous waste. Almost all of it is currently stored at Lucas Heights where they've got a heavy concentration of Australia's nuclear experts to manage that waste and to deal with any problems that arise. They've got high-level security as opposed to the Kimber site where you just have a couple of security guards. Uh, if they left that waste at Lucas Heights, it would avoid the transport risks. And as I mentioned before, this intermediate-level waste is destined for a deep underground repository, which could be anywhere in Australia. Uh, it could be in Queensland, New South Wales, WA. So to move that waste from Lucas Heights to a storage shed at Kimber in South Australia, it just is so ridiculous and indefensible and, uh, you know, just absurd, really. Is this plan saying that they're going to remove all the waste from Lucas Heights or just some of it? I guess they would aim to move all of it. But one of the issues that needs to be thought through with these debates is a lot of places continue to produce nuclear waste, Lucas Heights in particular, but also uh, hospitals and some scientific institutions. So they need to have good on-site storage facilities, even if there is a, a remote centralised dump somewhere. So that's one of the issues that we continue to press the government on is... Um, you need to rethink this whole process, start from the beginning, look at sites where they're continuing to process waste and make sure that they do have adequate on-site storage facilities because they're going to need them even if a dump is available. But other sites, which we call legacy sites, where they're no longer producing waste, uh, well, there's certainly a strong case for centralising management of that waste. But none of these things have been thought through. We don't have a proper inventory of the waste, of how much waste is stored where and in what sort of conditions that waste is is stored. And you really need that baseline information before you can really move forward in any uh, credible way on this whole issue. And you need to think through all the different options, including the most obvious one, which is leaving the waste at Lucas Heights for the interim. It might not be a great solution over a period of hundreds of years, but seems to be a, a viable solution for the coming decades where uh, ANSTO is still operating and they still have high-level security and they still have most of Australia's nuclear experts working there. And I'd imagine they'd have to tra- train up new nuclear experts to go out into the middle of the desert. Well, it's not the middle of the desert, is it? Into South Australia. Yeah, well, in, yeah it's farming land. Um, well, I think they were hoping that whatever expertise they mainly come from ANSTO, from Lucas Heights. They've moved the federal government department responsible for this issue. They've renamed it, they now call it the Australian Radioactive Waste Agency, but it's essentially a government department. They've moved that to Adelaide. I think they're talking about having 35 staff there. Uh, There are many hundreds of staff at Lucas Heights. I really don't know what their plans are. They're talking about operating it on a permanent basis and having 45 staff out at Kimber, but that's not plausible. It's not plausible if you can, if you look at radioactive waste dumps overseas and how much waste they're handling, how many staff they have. The way they're promoting this 
this configuration is because they want to talk up the number of jobs that will be at Kimber uh, to win local support. But in a previous version of this, under the Howard government, they were saying there would be zero jobs at the dump site and every once every three to five years they would truck in the waste, dispose of it and then roll out of there and there would be no one there on a permanent basis except a couple of security guards. So yeah, it's it's all up for grabs. We don't know what they're really planning but they're just trying to uh, talk up the number of local jobs that would be available. I'd imagine there'd have to be a fair bit of expertise to build or to excavate the deep container for this waste. How deep is it and what would it contain? Well, well, for the intermediate level waste that's destined for a deep underground repository, that would be hundreds of metres underground. But remember, that's not what they're planning at Kimber. They're planning shallow burial and it won't even be underground at all. It's a very strange idea they've got. It's essentially going to be above ground but covered by several metres of dirt and clay and whatever else they've got in mind. You do need technical expertise to manage anything radioactive. You need really good monitoring. You need people who know how to respond to incidents and accidents as they happen. But at another level, digging a hole in the ground or covering drums of waste with metres of, of soil, you just need a bulldozer for that. You don't need uh, any expertise whatsoever. It's pretty low-tech. What about the vehicles to transport the material to Kimba? Do they have to be specially, have special containers on them? No, but they do. I mean, they are clearly identified as carrying radioactive materials, but that's about it, really. And there are plenty of examples around the world of accidents involving trucks with radioactive waste, so we're worried about that. We're worried about emergency service capabilities around Australia along this transport corridor from Lucas Heights to Kimber but also from other sites around Australia. You know, it wouldn't be a difficult job to make sure that emergency services capabilities are up to scratch but that involves forethought and planning and some some expenditure of funds to upgrade capabilities where that's necessary and I don't think that there's any forethought or planning going on and certainly no willingness to uh, to expand funds to upgrade capabilities. Well, where to from here, Jim, for both the traditional owners and the concerned citizens? Well, there are quite a few things bubbling away. The traditional owners have launched a legal challenge against the nomination of the site and the most practical thing that all of us can do to stop the dump and to support the traditional owners is to uh, support their crowdfunder which is funding their legal challenge and people can do that by going to GoFundMe and searching for Bangala, B-A-R-N-G-A-L-A and uh, donating a few dollars to them as much as you can and in addition to the traditional owners legal challenge uh, we've got an environmental assessment process going on so we've just put in submissions over the past week for that that will drag on for some time. There's an independent inquiry by the Federal Nuclear Regulator, ARPANSA. There's also the Federal Election. You know, that's probably the game changer. If the, if the coalition gets kicked out of the Federal Election, that will put us in a much stronger position. But, you know, we're absolutely continuing to fight.
politically and publicly and by supporting the Bangala in the legal challenge, and we will continue to do so. And this is faux South Australia or this is faux Australia? Both. Okay. Uh, and also faux Melbourne is, is supporting this as well. Thank you so much, Jim, and we can um, cross our fingers perhaps for the federal election coming up. Yep, thanks for that, Jam. Okay, bye. And Dr Jim Green is the National Nuclear Campaigner for the Friends of the Earth. And if you can help, go to GoFundMe, Bangara, B-A-R-N-G-A-L-A. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. You're listening to Radical Radio on 3CR, 855 on your AM dial, 3CR digital and podcasting and streaming on 3cr.org.au. Mohammed El Halabi has been held in an Israeli prison for almost six years with still no verdict on the charges of diverting millions of dollars of World Vision and Australian aid money to terrorism, despite both the Australian government and World Vision finding no evidence of misused funds. For Palestinians, the Israeli justice system means closed courts, secret evidence, torture and long delays. Join Amnesty, the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network, and Free Palestine Melbourne in a vigil to mark Muhammad's birthday and call for his release. The vigil will be held at 2 p.m. on Saturday, the 2nd of April at Federation Square. Stand up for justice for Muhammad El-Halabi and for Palestine. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Civil society organisations welcome the future funds exclusions of Elbert Systems and call on the federal and Victorian governments to drop Elbert or risk complicity in serious violations of international law. Civil society organisations working for human rights for Palestinians and others welcome the news of Australia's sovereign wealth fund, the future funds exclusion of Israeli arms manufacturer Elbert Systems Limited from its investment portfolio because of allegations of its involvement in the production of cluster munitions. To find out what this means and what further needs to happen, I spoke with the Executive Director of the Australian Centre for International Justice, Rowan Araf. Rowan, when you learn that Australia's sovereign wealth fund, the Future Fund, has in its investment portfolio, companies such as Albert Systems that are complicit in inflicting human harm. It rings alarm bells loudly. But the problem is that this Israeli company also has partnerships with the federal and Victorian governments. 
how extensive are these connections with the three entities and Albert Systems? And what can you tell us about this company and its record? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, the great news that the Future Fund uh, excluded Albert Systems from its investment portfolio. And, you know, we were aware of this from at least early 2021 um, when I was, you know, obviously our organization has been following the Future Fund and monitoring other, you know, problematic investments in relation to Myanmar and, of course, Yemen. Um, and so this was, you know, a welcome surprise. Although one thing I do want to say at the outset is that um, it's, you know, a little bit unfortunate that the reason that they've excluded Albert Systems is just on the basis that it's um, allegedly still continuing to manufacture or be involved in the manufacture of cluster munitions. We think, of course, that, you know, it should go beyond. The reasons should also include other uh, concerning issues to do with Albert, and that is its direct complicity with Palestinian violations of Palestinian human rights, whether that's due to the border surveillance that it provides to the annexation wall, which has been condemned by the international community and found to be illegal by the International Court of Justice some you know, 20 years ago in 2004, or it's uh, in particular the drone use, particularly in Gaza over the many, many various uh, wars and campaigns, uh, aerial campaigns targeting Gaza, unfortunately, in the last 20 years. But the two other contracts that you're talking about are generally defence contracts. There's numerous defence contracts that Albert Systems of Australia and Albert Systems has with uh, the Defence Department that have been the subject of, you know, quite various media stories, particularly last year. There was one where you might recall Albert Systems was I guess you could say it was rejected by, um, in terms of actually, sorry, I should say one contract in particular was rejected because there was rumors about whether or not the company was using it in a way to backdoor information, so-called, you know, back to Israel. Um, that's one contract. But in particular, that one that your listeners might be interested in and, and that campaigners, um, in particular BDS Australia and Free Palestine Melbourne and, and others have been concerned about is the announcement in February last year by the Victorian Andrews government that it entered into a partnership with Albert Systems of Australia to establish a so-called centre of excellence. It's a research centre of excellence for human and machine teaming, which is really concerning. And, you know, we, I think it's right that um, people in Australia are concerned by this partnership. Um, Albert Systems is a really problematic company and it's directly involved, we say, with uh, Israel's violations of, of international law and serious human rights breaches against the Palestinian people. You know, violations which we say amount to crimes under international law, crimes such as war crimes and crimes against humanity. It just makes you wonder, doesn't it, about the investment portfolio of organisations such as the, the fund, the Future Fund, mm. and also the liability of governments, the federal government and the Victorian government operating on our behalf and getting into bed with companies like this. That's right. I mean, one thing to note about the Future Fund is that it's Australia's sovereign wealth fund. It manages at least $250 billion of Australian funds, supposedly to um, protect our future as Australians. So this is public money, it's taxpayers' money. And I think it needs to be scrutinised 
and and so you know this is great like i said that lbet is excluded on the basis um that it's alleged to be involved in the manufacture of cluster munitions but there are other problematic investments that the future fund uh has invested in um in particular relate, relating to arms and nuclear weapons manufacturing companies we looked at one in particular last uh in, in early this year where it was found that there were US weapons companies that obviously are providing and, and uh providing weapons to um belligerents in the war in Yemen for Saudi Arabia and the UAE and that's really problematic because there are devastating consequences against the civilian population there in Yemen and obviously serious violations of IHL that are being violated by the Saudi Arabia and and the UAE for example and so you know we were saying more broadly about the future fund and other investments funds as well and pension funds is that they need to look they need to really be attuned to their responsible investment and human rights obligations and ensure that any investment must be in line with international law and human rights principles and so they need to really i think go through their investment portfolio with a fine tooth comb and ensure that they are not investing in entities that are aiding and abetting international crimes we've seen that recently obviously in relation to russia the russian invasion of ukraine how quickly investment funds are acting in terms of looking through their investment portfolio and ensuring that no investments are contributing to you know international law violations there it would be hard to imagine that groups such as the the future fund and also the government departments don't know about these companies like elbert so and there's mm. thousands of other country companies that they could be investing in so it's quite deliberate that they are putting their money with these companies yeah i mean i i wouldn't say that that's a far fetched comment at all jan i think you're right and one of the things we're interested in about the future fund is that it's um really not transparent in terms of the uh knowledge of the entities that it invests in it only provides a list of the top 100 entities um as a sovereign wealth fund in a democratic country we think that's unacceptable if you look at for example the largest sovereign wealth fund in the world which is Norway's Norges Bank or Enden they regularly provide updated um lists of their entire investment portfolio so you're able to go onto their website and visit visit their website and and see who it is that they're investing and you're able to really engage with the the investments and try and make a case against any really problematic investment and they also as an example and um, they also have an independent ethics board and that's something that we don't have here at the with the future fund there's really you know you can make a case to the future fund but so far we've seen that they haven't been very receptive to civil society civil society society's calls to divest from certain investments whether that's been in relation to Myanmar in relation to China and obviously Palestine. What about Albert Systems Australia? How difficult is it to contact them and and put your case forward? And um, I wouldn't know too much about that, but you know, one thing to note about Albert Systems Australia is that it's a wholly owned subsidiary of Albert Systems in Israel. 
Um, and so there are a few countries that Albert Systems is, has offices in. Australia is one of them. America is one of them. They're apparently also intending to open up uh, office in the UAE, unfortunately, due to the normalization of the so-called arms deal, as we call it. It's known as the Abraham Peace Accord. But of course, you know, if you were to really look at the at the peace, the so-called peace accord itself, it, it really is uh, an arms deal. And obviously, Albert Systems intending to open up there is, is an extension of that interest in, you know, extending the arms trade. So that's one thing to note about the Albert Systems of Australia. We haven't obviously tried to contact them. I wouldn't know if any other organisation has, but there is a campaign that's been launched by grassroots organisations um, and led by BDS Australia against the, the partnership with the Victorian government and other defence contracts that Albert Systems of Australia have with the Australian military or defence Depart- department. I'd imagine, though, that you have contacted the Victorian government on this issue. Well, we have in, in relation to um, a few points, um, not in particular yet, but the, of course we understand that these groups, BDS Australia has, um, and we understand even state Greens members in Victoria have contacted the various government ministers in, in Victoria about this problematic partnership and the centre that it hopes to establish. I think there are other concerns because it appears that universities may also be involved in this so-called sector of excellence. So I think it requires really a broad-based campaigning strategy and public awareness raising about the effect, uh, the impact of such a centre and more broadly uh, how the really concerning direct consequences of complicity with crimes against the Palestinian people through you know, partnerships such as this with Albert Systems. Are you aware what human rights international law says about companies and governments dealing with these arms manufacturers? Well, I think one thing to point to is in terms of Australia's international legal obligations, one of the things that we would direct people to is Australia's obligations under the Arms Trade Treaty, for example, and um, that's something, you know, Australia is a, is, has ratified that treaty. It's a state party to the arms trade treaty. It prohibits the authorization of transfer of arms. So one of the things that's uh, really important is that the Palestinian civil society has called for a two-way arms embargo imposed on Israel. And this would, we think we would fall under it, of course, I think, uh, obviously, they're establishing a centre of excellence and whatever is produced under that kind of research will be used to further, you know, Elbit's ability to produce the systems that it provides to uh, one of its major suppliers, which is the Israeli Israeli military. It also, I should note, supplies the Israeli police and Ministry of Interior. So it's not just um, the Israeli military that it provides its uh, military technology and uh, weapons too. So that's obviously one obligation. There are obviously other obligations under international humanitarian law and international human rights law more broadly to end business and human rights, not to engage uh, with um, entities or individuals that are complicit in violations of international law. Well, finally, it's just very sad, isn't it, that a company like Albert Systems is engaged with a 
a research institute called the Centre for Excellence. Mm. Yeah, this is the partnership that we're talking about. So I don't know how far, I mean, this announcement by the Victorian government to build this so-called Centre of Excellence uh, was only made last year, so it's been 12 months. And, uh, you know, we haven't really seen much come about as after that announcement, so we don't know what stage this research centre is is at in terms of, you know, when it might be launched or anything like that. So I think that's why it's imperative for all of us to engage in a campaign against the setting up of this this research centre. But just the linking of a company like Albert Systems with a, a, mm. a with a phrase centre of excellence. Exactly. Yeah, it's really problematic. I mean I don't I don't understand. I'm not from Victoria, but I've I've been led to believe that this Victorian government is one of the most progressive Victorian governments ever. And so this was really quite shocking, I think, to many Palestinians and their supporters that they would enter into this kind of arrangement. But it seems to be that the Victorian government is interested in kind of expanding its relationships with the armed sector, which is a broader problem more generally, of course, Australia, you know, Australian defence training and, and, and industry partnerships with arms firms is gaining a ground, unfortunately. So that's a broader issue, I think, for the for the anti-war movement in Australia and the peace movement. So maybe this could be a really good target, I think, for us to look at the complicity of violations with international human rights law and international law and you know, serious abuses against Palestinian people. These are, these are serious crimes under international law that we're alleging here. One thing I also want to note is that Elbert is also... You know, there are there have been news reports about its involvement with the Myanmar military. This is before the campaign of genocide against the Rohingya people that began in 2017. Apparently, the junta the junta leader visited Israel in 2015 and visited Albert Systems headquarters um, and made a purchase sometime around then. And there's also allegations that it continued to provide systems or uh, weapons to the Myanmar military even after the coup of February last year. There's also allegations from um, our friends in the West Papuan Freedom Movement that Elbert is also supplying equipment to the Indonesian military um, that's being used to suppress human rights of the West Papuan people. So. You know, there's a multitude of um, intersectional, I think, campaigns that can be developed around and are developed, I have to say. A grassroots groups have been linking together. In Melbourne last year, there was protests that brought together West Papuan rights advocates and Palestinian advocates to um, bring attention to the partnership, this so-called Centre of Excellence that's being touted by the Victorian government. You know, I think people are seeing that it's really problematic and I only hope that the campaign by um, these grassroots activists increases and people join and come on board and we see that the Victorian government relinquishes and ends this partnership. We can hope. Okay, thanks very much. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks so much, Jan. And Rowan Arif.
is the Executive Director of the Australian Centre for International Justice. Algorithms have become these gatekeepers to opportunity. They're already deciding who gets hired, who gets health care, how long a prison sentence someone serves. And what I didn't realize is that a lot of these algorithms haven't been vetted for accuracy. We don't even know how accurate they are. They often run on what's popular, and we all know what's popular isn't always good. And they haven't been vetted for racial bias and for gender bias. I had no idea the scope of invasive surveillance, the the preciseness to which they can predict our behavior, and how vulnerable all of us can be to sort of predatory practices because of these algorithms. And so we need some protections in place as citizens. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. I'm from the Lakota Nation in the geographical center of North America that we call Turtle Island. And community radio is about your community, your heart, which 3CR community radio is right here at 85.5 a.m. So it is digital, and I'm, I'm presuming you can, you can go worldwide with it. Um, people are listening in America to you, so talk back. Australia to the Earth, peace with Earth. Thank you. The Oaks and Ghost Horse Community Radio is your love. I'm pretty sure that most Australians were not aware that presidential elections were held in Timor Leste earlier this month, with at least 16 candidates. Human rights and trade union activist Peter Murphy travelled to Timor Leste for the election, and I spoke with Peter yesterday. Peter Jose Ramos Horta and Francisco Luolo Gutierrez were really the only two in the running. How did it eventuate? Well, I think there was a shock. I could say I, I, I was part of a group of three election observers from the Search Foundation, and we got there just in time for the last rally on the Wednesday, the 16th of March, and uh, it was a sort of uh, a sort of love fest very uh, boisterous, happy, celebratory event that was for the Luolo campaign. And um, then there was two, they had two days of cooling off and then the vote on the Saturday. The um, expectation, I, I guess, that I, I came with was that uh, on, on historical patterns that the Fretland vote for Luolo would be the biggest vote, but it wouldn't be decisive. And... Uh, that Horta's vote would be the next um, and that there would be a runoff between the two of them. But Horta's vote was very strong. It was really backed by the CNRT party and uh, advocated by Shanana Gusmao. And uh, when the voting started, it was you know, in the places I was at in Dili, it was really a very big vote for uh, Jose Ramos Horta and uh, um, a lesser vote for... Um, Luolo than expected. The uh, Luolo camp was very crestfallen um, that night and Sunday. But as, as Sunday advanced, uh, 
the, the, the counting showed that the Horta campaign was not going to get 50%. It was going to be around 45 and um, that's how that's how the sort of night ended. Uh, but during that day, uh, Jose Ramos Horta himself gave a media conference saying that he expected to win an outright victory, you know, when the counting was finished. He was sort of talking about what he would do. But Shanana Guzmao gave a media conference where he, he was starting to object to the the counting. It took a few days, but uh, the um, CNRT made a formal complaint to the Court of Appeal that there was a discrepancy between the number of votes cast according to the uh, STAE, the, the Electoral Administrative Bodies, a bit like our uh, Australian Electoral Commission, and the um, national, they call it CNE, National Electoral Commission, which supervises that administrative body. I think the CNRT case was that there was far too many votes counted as cast, and so therefore having a smaller body of votes to, to divide between the two candidates that would put Horta's vote over 50% and he should be declared the winner. Anyway, the court hasn't ruled yet. I expect today, tomorrow, and there'll be a ruling. Um, I've found the sort of most recent figures coming from both organisations, CNE and STAE, don't show such a discrepancy at all. So uh, the the, uh, the administrative body showed that there was a turnout of about 70% of 647,172 votes and the CNE is showing of just a few thousand more at 651,859 and the, the difference between the two is, is it's very small. So the outcome really is that uh, Jose Ramos Horta has scored about 46.5% of the vote and the Luwala has scored about 22.1% of the vote. That's a very low figure. How did that happen? There was another candidate. I mean, there were 16 candidates in the ballot. So um, it, it's uh, the ones who got more than 1% of the vote. There's one, two, three, only six candidates. There, there was a candidate that really um, broke the, the Fredland vote, I think. He's, he was the former the most recent commander of the army in, in uh, Timor-Leste, and he goes by the name of Lere. He campaigned and got about 7.5% of the vote. So if you add his vote to Luolo's vote, you get the normal 30% Fredolin vote that's been very consistent through the last 20 years. So um, that, I think, explains what's happened with Luolo's vote. Um, and then the other candidates who, who scored well were a woman who's the president of the Kunto party and she's a deputy prime minister. She got 8.7%. Uh, the Democratic Party candidate got 7.2%. And uh, another candidate got 2.0%. So, you know, the, uh, the big question, I think, is that... Um, Yes, we're going to go to a second round vote, which will be on April 19. And can uh, the CNRT Horta camp get that extra 4% that they need to clinch their presidency? Um, or is it is it a situation where pretty well everyone else is going to 
come in behind Luola and maybe Luola will turn out to be the president after all. So uh, over the over this weekend, there was a conference organised by the Prime Minister's Party, the People's Liberation Party, and the Kunto came along to that and Fretland came along to that. And it seems that they've committed their votes to Luolo and uh, that also Larry has has made that announcement as well. So I really wouldn't want to predict the outcome of the next round, but it would be much closer than the first round seems to suggest. Perhaps the CNRT campaign has sort of hit its maximum already. Apart from what Horter and Shinano are saying, were there any other or were there any irregularities? I don't think so. I mean, it's uh, this is the third uh, election like this that I've been an observer for, and I think it was run very uh, cleanly. That the uh, the actual electoral staff are very dedicated and diligent. Uh, they they can always improve these things, but I didn't see any uh, vote buying. I didn't see any intimidation. And as I said, the, ra- the final rally was uh, marked by not, not, no hate speech. There was a bit of fractiousness, I think, between the two main campaign groups, but you know, the least number of incidents of rock throwing or anything like that through the campaign also were recorded. So, you know, I think it was, you know, fairly, fairly good. That's at the level of, you know, there, there was no extra ballots printed. There was no phony, phony ballot boxes or anything like that. Um, that that was noted, but I think the uh, the underlying political dynamic is is a little more troubled than appear, you know appears from that that account I just gave you. So um, it's hard it's hard to to really read the public when you you're an outsider and just watching for a week. But I think one one interesting factor was that there was a very heavy cyclone impact on Dili last October. It flooded houses which had never flooded before and did a lot of damage to people who don't have many resources. And um, uh, Shanana Gusmao was seen, you know, walking through the water and meeting people and talking to them about their situation. And, um, you know, Luolo and Mari Alkatiri from Fredland didn't, didn't appear in the streets in that, in the flood itself. The water subsided rather quickly and it wasn't, it's not like the floods we've seen recently in northern New South Wales and Brisbane, but um, it was um, still a big shock. And I think in the Dilly vote, there's definitely a sort of reflection of that perception that the Fredland people weren't really there uh, at the crucial moment. But bigger than that, you know, across the whole country where there wasn't flooding, uh, the, the issue is something to do with the stability of the government the same apparent willingness of Shanana to upend governments and call for early elections when he's dissatisfied with the, you know, his his own situation, and, um, and I think this was one of the main main dynamics, especially the message coming from the Luolo campaign was about the that the president is all about proper governance, uh, upholding the constitutional processes, and trying to keep their country united and the campaign message from Jose Ramos Horta was more like what what's a government program and, and promoting the idea of the greater sunrise gas field being developed and a petrochemical industry built on the south coast of the island 
Horta's own particular angle about the um, need to bring in foreign direct investment and have uh, teameries employed in sort of export zones and looking for job growth that way. As a president, you know, Jose Ramasota couldn't do any of those things. It would depend on the government formed by the majority coalition in the parliament. So one of the things which was really a live issue in the election also was that uh, Jose Ramasota had promised that if he was elected, he would dismiss the parliament and the current one and call for early elections. And this was to enable a coalition led by Shanana Gushmao to return to power with Shanana as the Prime Minister to carry out that kind of economic program. So after the 2017 election, there was a similar hiatus where Shanana didn't like the outcome of the parliamentary election. He sunk the government then, which was a Fretland minority government, and then created a majority that you know he was really dominating. Um, but then he sunk that one as well in 2018. 20, no, sorry, 20, yeah, 2018. You know, there's been quite a bit of instability of government and, and I think a sense that uh, the government is stalled and wasn't able to implement new programs because of the, these uh, shake-ups that happened. Yeah, I, th- I do think this, this was more the underlying thing, but it wasn't articulated that clearly. And the Luolo campaign was sort of avoiding the details of all of that and more emphasising unity, stability and uh, development for the whole country type of message. But I think Luolo really laboured the point that the the president is, is about the process and the constitution, not about the government program. Is it a fact that both Horta and Guzmau have tried careers outside of Timor? No, no. I think Jose Ramasorta has had a period where he worked for the United Nations, mm. um, a couple of particular jobs, but they were temporary things. And uh, he's always come back to Timor. But Shanana's never done that. He's always been engaged in Timorese politics. Well, you were there for, what, a week, Peter? Yes, eight, eight days, yeah. What did you see and what were you told? Well, um you know, I was mostly interested in, in the election and, and how it was going, but uh, there were some other discussions, but more the context, you know, like uh, especially the people uh, were emphasising that uh, there's a lot of geopolitics which impo- impacts upon Timor-Leste and uh, they have a sense that, that, you know, the Fretland will never be allowed to form the government because of the various views of uh, the United States, Australia, Indonesia and China. And then another message is, uh, you know, we have 1.4 million people, but we've got so many millionaires. How can it be? <laughs> so, you know, the sense that corruption is, is really out of control is pretty strong um, in the country. You know, this is my perception over visiting for 20 years now is um, that the ordinary people haven't got much of an improvement in in the 20 years. Many people don't have much change out of $5 in their pocket, but at the same time there's these rather palatial homes uh, dotting the hillsides around Dili and and further away. And I I do know that there's a fair bit of um, money, you know, 
put into resorts in, in and properties in Bali and so on. That it makes you just shake your head. But um, you know, I, I guess my conclusion from all of that is that you know, the people of Timor Leste have got to, to work through the the political problem themselves, and they shouldn't be uh, disabled, you know, by, in in doing so by uh, foreign interference. And there should be support for democracy uh, consistently from the international community. And uh, the other issue that, that uh, it was said a few times, but in different contexts, that okay, the first priority of the people of Timor Leste in elections is to, is peace. We vote first for peace, and that gives a bit of a whip hand to the forces who are willing to use violence. So if uh, the population have experienced so much violence you know, since the 1970s, they're very attuned, I think, to the to the signals. And uh, so you, you, I, I myself feel that people vote uh, for uh, governments which are willing to wreck the joint if they don't get their way. Um, and and the population will tolerate this for the sake of instability and peace in their daily lives, and you know wait and wait and wait and wait for the time when it can be different. But they're very patient people, I think. Just wondering, in a situation like a election campaign, do schools, health centres, employment, do those sort of issues come into it like they do here in Australia? Yes, but I do think because this was a presidential election, uh, it wasn't the primary focus, certainly of the Luwala campaign. And unfortunately, the, the CNRT campaign doesn't want to really emphasise those things either. So that was the other long conversation I, I did have was with a, a former teacher. He was saying that he had investigated 16 schools in, in some detail in the Dili area as part of a study he did. And um, you know the, the level of nutrition of the the students was poor. They were uh, in very hot rooms. They were very poorly equipped uh, rooms, and the teachers were also poorly equipped. There was very few lesson plans. You know, as a result, the level of education output is low. Uh, so he he was desperate for uh, you know trying to educate himself better and find more capacity to campaign about the quality of education. And I know this is a long-standing uh, concern of the Fretland side of politics, um, but uh, they haven't really been in power since 2006. So, you know, it's, it's a very long time. Again, you know, you would have thought that after 20 years there would have been a substantial improvement. But, you know, I, I visited about eight... Or, 10 different schools uh, as an observer. Most of the voting takes place in schools and classrooms. And, you know, I was in classrooms with poor lighting, with uh, ceiling panels falling down because they're damaged by water and in a very, very basic equipment. So, like, you know, blackboards only and simple desks and so I, I do think there's a, a really serious backlog of uh, investment required in education and I'm pretty sure that the health system is the same. We had to get our compulsory uh, PCR tests before being able to return to Australia and did that at the National Hospital and, you know, was conducted in a, in a shade shelter 
um, outside the, the hospital building and then the test was done in the reception area of the hospital, not, not in any other specialised part of the hospital. And uh, I was informed that <clears throat> there's been a dengue fever catastrophe really uh, during this wet season where the hospitals were just full of children. And that is, all the beds were taken, all corridors were full and, um, you know, there was an overflow. The hospitals just could not cope. And again, I think that that's, that's a bit of a scandal to say the least. And um, we should really have paid, you know, from the Australian end, we should be paying more attention to the need to to correct and invest in these basic areas of the society. So there's no legacy of the Cuban health professionals? Yeah, there is. I mean, there's a lot of doctors, a lot of Cuban-trained doctors, uh, Timorese, who are working in the system. But, you know, again, it's one thing to have a doctor. It's another thing to have a, a, a clinic that's in good order and to have the clinic supplied with medicine. So, you know... You've got to have a whole system that's working well rather than say, okay, we've got a doctor or we've got a nurse. Yeah, so I think that that investment, which, you know, was over many years, has produced a significant number of trained medical staff who are good, but they they aren't provided with sufficient resources. And that did show up in this dengue outbreak. Jan, I I was very shocked to hear that there was a complete... uh, shortage of analgesics, you know, Panadol in, in Timor Leste because of the extent of the dengue outbreak and, you know, therefore they couldn't, you know, the government wasn't able to supply that. It's a really devastating thought. But I think that gives an indication of, you know, the serious lack of uh, resources in the health sector as well. In the more rural areas or outside of the main city, Dilly, what about the road system for people to get their produce to markets? I can't be sure. Um, I, I do know now that the uh, the road system has improved in the last five years, you know, like exponentially. Uh, finally, there was this period when you know, that Shanana Gusmao had resigned as Prime Minister in the end of 2015, declaring he was a failure and there'd been too much corruption and asking others to, to step in and um, help fix it. And, you know, there was an 18-month period before the next election and there were some basically sound contracts signed, in this case with Chinese uh, contractors, to rebuild the main road. So I, I did travel on the road to Amera that election. It was really a good quality road. And uh, I travelled also to um, Manatuto in an earlier election. It was like a shambolic mess. But that, that road has been repaired as far as I, I heard from reports. But I didn't travel outside of Dili this time. So I, I'm a bit wary of you know reporting a general picture to you about that. But this time I didn't hear so much complaints about the roads. You know, even in Dili in 2017, the roads were shambolic. And these recent floods did cause uh, some damage, but all the same, I think that the um, quality of the roads, even in, in Dili, was, was relatively good. What's the talk amongst the people of the oil and gas project? Again, I didn't hear much. <laughs> 
So, uh, you know, I could hear it from the campaign of uh, Ramasorta, but I, I couldn't hear it um, in among the people. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, there's a language problem that not many people speak English. And there I was, you know, watching hundreds and hundreds of people vote and then watching them watch the counting where they were all cheering as the Horta vote, you know, was, was big. But there wasn't uh, commentary about the jobs coming in that context. Separately, you know, I talked to people who who um, were looking for work in Australia and ha- or had relatives working in the UK or Ireland and... Um, especially the ones working in Australia were really happy they're part of that seasonal worker program and when I left you know to come back to Australia there were 70 of these new seasonal workers on the flight going to half of them I think in Tasmania and half in Queensland to work in agriculture so you know I do I did feel like there was a difference from from before that um, the sense that uh, the main the, the better jobs are outside the country the accessible jobs are outside the country so is an idea that's really sunk in now. Yeah, again, I don't know that Australia should be so proud that that's how it's turning out, um, but I do think that there's a, you know, a really big potential for Australia to to help people with employment and to do more help with uh, training, and and therefore, hopefully, uh, domestic economic development in Timor, which can employ the people. Well, you could say help rather than hinder, as they have in the past. Yes, it's, I think it's been fairly um, erratic and driven more by the oil politics and geopolitical considerations than any real you know, consistent concern for the welfare of the people. You'll be going back for the 19th of April runoff? I'm, I'm considering it. <laughs> I think it's a bit of a, uh, a challenge for me to do that, but I, I do think it's important to have observers there for that, considering what's happened in this first round. Um, yeah. So one way or the other, I think the Search Foundation will send another team. Good day, Peter. Thank you very much. Thanks very much for this talk, Jan. Bye. Trade Union and Human Rights Activist Peter Murphy. And as Peter said, he hoped to go back to the runoff on the 19th of April to Timor-Leste. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.